We are in a series on the book of Colossians. Paul's letter, it's in the New Testament. And I think I was overly idealistic when I set this up because I thought I was going to get through the entire book in six weeks. And now uh, we're stretched into uh, July, to the end of July. And uh, But you know what? It's okay because uh, we're not uh, compelled to just plow through this stuff. And there's such such good material in here that we want to spend time and just really uh, begin to understand it a bit. Last week, um, we looked at this incredible hymn, really, of Paul's, uh, a bold, all-encompassing affirmation of who Christ is. We pondered four verses, I think probably the four most powerful verses in the entire New Testament, that speak to the preeminence, the majesty, the beauty of Christ. And we considered what it means to begin to give Him first place, to give Him supremacy in our lives. It's a cosmic picture of Christ. And I had people say to me afterwards, you know, I'd never thought of Jesus as the Creator. I always have tended to think of Him as my friend, as my Savior, but not as this one who created the universe and everything in it. I suggested that we begin to give Christ priority in our lives, not simply when we grasp something of the truth, when we begin to understand that He is both Lord of creation and Lord of the church, but when we truly believe, when we are seized by the truth of who Christ is, when we integrate that truth into our lives, and, by the way, when that truth begins to transform us and to change us, that's when we know that we believe. The four verses that we looked at last week, they aren't Paul's final word on the subject of Christ's supremacy. Paul is nowhere finished extolling the truth about Jesus. And in verses 19 and 20, he goes on to proclaim more truth and to further explain his convictions about who Christ is. I want to read these two verses. And if you have a Bible, please read them. There's an outline in your program as well. This is what Paul says in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The first thing that Paul says here is that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. All of his fullness. And the word fullness is significant and it's problematic. Commentators and interpreters, and I find this stuff fascinating, by the way, They have wrestled with this word for years. Some have suggested that fullness is the most difficult word in the entire book of Colossians. And you look at it and you go, fullness is fullness, right? What else can it mean? Well, here's the problem. By using the word fullness, some people have asked, is Paul ascribing deity to Jesus? That is, is he saying that Jesus Christ is in fact God in the flesh? Or is he saying that Jesus merely possesses some of the attributes of God? For example, God's righteousness, God's wisdom, God's power. In other words, what does the word fullness really mean? And this is what people with PhDs do for a living, right? They they wrestle with words like fullness. I don't pull out the Greek word because that's kind of boring. Anyway, it seems to me, based on what Paul has already said about Christ in the first part of this chapter, and in his letters elsewhere in the New Testament, that fullness, you ready, means fullness. How's that? It means that the sum total of God 
fully dwelt in the person of Christ. Not something of God, but all of God. Not partial fullness, but full fullness. Full fullness. And by the way, the Greek word actually gets at that kind of meaning. Full fullness. Chew on that for a while. All the fullness. All the fullness. All the attributes. All the activities of God. Spirit, word, wisdom, righteousness, glory. All the redemptive power of God were present in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Paul is saying. And remember, the heresy, the philosophy that was circulating was saying that Jesus is something less than God. In fact, Jesus is really no more than an angelic being. He's on the same level as these phantoms, as these emanations. Paul's saying something very different. All that God is, his full nature, his divine power, are present in the person of Christ. According to Paul, if you want to see God in all his fullness, you look no further than Jesus. And then in verse 20, this amazing truth about Christ. God, through Christ, was reconciling or has reconciled all things to himself. God has reconciled all things to himself through Christ, both earthly and heavenly things. Earthly and heavenly things. In other words, even those angelic beings have been reconciled to God through Christ. He's brought them back. This is the word reconciliation. He's brought them back. He's made peace with them. He has, in fact, changed the very nature of our relationship and all of creation's relationship with God. Once we were estranged, we were alienated from God. We, in a very real sense, were God's enemies. But now, because of what Christ has done, we are God's friends. And by the way, when you say God's friends, that is a very accurate word. And it means what it says. We're friends of God. In short, through Christ... God has restored our broken relationship, creation's broken relationship with him, with each other. That's what Paul's getting at when he says reconciliation. Christ has brought all of creation, including you and me, back to God. And how did God achieve this reconciliation? Second half of verse 20. He achieved it through Christ's death, through his blood which is shed on the cross. That's how this happened. Christ's supremacy his preeminence, his majesty, his beauty is rooted ultimately in God's love. A love that was demonstrated dramatically and decisively 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. Go figure. Although the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a seemingly God-forsaken garbage dump on the outskirts of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago attracted little, if any, attention Historians of the era didn't even write about it. It was just a common occurrence. Romans crucified political, you know, people who were outspoken, all those things. But this was the event that reconciled heaven and earth. This was the event that restored a broken relationship that existed between the Creator and His creation. This event 2,000 years ago in the Middle East was the redemptive event in all of human history. Isn't it just like God to pull something like that off? Christianity is not founded on some mythical salvation drama. 
It's based on the reality, on the historical fact of Christ's suffering and his death on a Roman cross. That symbol is at the heart of what we believe. It's too nice. That symbol, that cross, is too nice. As Paul's reference to Christ's blood and cross suggests in this passage, this reconciliation was costly and it was violent. The Passion of the Christ, the film that many of you have seen, gets at the violence of Christ's death. One writer says this, it brings us down from the lofty heights of preeminence and supremacy to the depths of human pain and suffering. Jesus Christ suffered and died on a Roman cross. We need to recognize that on the cross that this Jesus died for our sins and he died for the sins of the entire world and that his death accomplished that which you and I could never accomplish on our own. Reconciliation. Redemption. A restored relationship with the God who created all things. Commentator William Hendrickson, I think, gets at the real meaning of this. He says that sin ruined the universe. It destroyed the harmony between one creature and the other. It also destroyed the harmony between all creatures and their God. Through the blood of the cross, however, sin in principle has been conquered. Through Christ and his cross, the universe is restored to its proper relationship with God. You see, it's already happened. We don't always experience it. But the reality, the truth is, that when Christ died on the cross, he reconciled you and me and all of creation. What does that mean? Heaven and earth, everything, everyone, reconciled, brought back to God through Christ. It's up to us, personally. We have a responsibility to do something with the truth of what Christ did. To somehow appropriate this reconciliation. To make sense of it for ourselves. To accept what Christ has done for us and to begin to live into it. And as I look out, I see, you know, we're all along the spectrum. Some of you are simply dipping your toe into this reality. You're saying, what does this mean for me? What does Christ's death mean to me and for me? Others... You've heard this. You've heard this. But you too need to ask the question, what does his death on the cross mean for me? What does it mean for me? And then in verses 21 through 23, Paul talks about one more way in which we give Christ first place in our lives. We believe the truth about him and we begin to live into that truth and allow it to transform us. And then we trust him with our future. Trust. What a scary word for many of us. We don't trust many people. We don't trust God. But listen to these words. Paul says, once, he's he's speaking to the Colossians, reminding them of something. Once he said, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that's held out for you in the gospel. Trusting God with our future begins by being honest about our past. Trusting God with our future begins by being honest about the past, by looking clearly at who we once were, or perhaps who we now are. And how hard is that? But that's where it begins. 
We have to come to terms with who we are or perhaps with who we were and begin to deal with that. Before telling the Colossians who they are in Christ, now that they've been reconciled to God, Paul reminds them of who they were before Christ died for them. And this is a technique that he uses a lot in his letters. He will say to people, remember who you were. And I would say that to you this morning. Remember who you were. And you go, I don't want to remember who I was. Remember who you were. And now, look at who you are. He uses three words to describe the Colossians' condition prior to the cross. They were alienated. They were enemies in their minds. And they were evildoers. Strong language. In other words, like all of us, before we came to know Christ, the Colossians were isolated. They were lonely. They were angry. They were at odds with God and with other people. They were hostile and fearful and suspicious and mistrustful, prone to cause hurt and pain to other people. But that doesn't describe us, right? Wrong. That describes us. And if you find it offensive, I'm sorry. That's who we are. That's who we can be at our worst. Does it accurately describe who you once were? Does it describe who you are? I think there's a lot of really isolated, lonely, and angry people in our culture. And in the church, by the way. Are we really this bad? Come on, pastor. I do nice things once in a while. Sure, we all do. But in our core, I don't don't think we're that awesome, actually. All of us. And it's precisely why we need a Savior. Why we need Christ. And that is offensive to people. You need a Savior. I don't need a Savior. I don't need anything. I'm happy. (laughs) You ever had conversations like that? Well, after this bleak and troubling description of who the Colossians were prior to the cross, Paul offers this incredible assessment of who they are now after they've been reconciled. Although they, like us, are still a work in progress. Right? You have not arrived. None of us have. They are now holy. Holy. Set apart. They are, are you ready for this? They are perfect in God's eyes. They are without blemish. A reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. They're the ideal sacrificial animal. They're perfect. They are spotless. They are unstained. They are pure. And finally, they are free from accusation. Because of Christ's death on the cross, these believers no longer are the objects of accusation from God or from anybody else. These blameworthy sinners have become the righteousness of God. When they stand before God, no accusation will be directed toward them. In Christ, they are irreproachable. And here's the incredible news of the Gospel. This is who we are in Christ. It's who we are. Holy, without blemish, free from accusation. This is how God sees us. Believe it or not, when we are in Christ, we are new creatures. We are blameless. We are literally inhabitants of a whole other order. That's who we are. But when we look in the mirror, we don't see holy, perfect, any of that stuff, do we? That's why Paul reminds them, this is who you were. It's who you were. But this is who you are. 
And you're all, all of us are in this process. But there is a condition. Great. I knew it was too good to be true. There's an if in verse 23. If we continue. This is who we are. If we continue in our faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that's held out in the gospel. In other words, although Christ has reconciled us to God, although he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves, we must do our part. We must do, are you ready for this, what he will not do for us. There are things that Christ will not do for us. We must remain committed to him. He cannot make you or me committed to him. He can't make us follow. He will not force us to do that. That's up to us. And if we allow anyone or anything to dislodge us from the truth of the gospel, from our foundation, we will find ourselves without hope. I don't think there's anything more sad than someone who knows Christ, has committed his or her life to Christ, and then willfully chooses to walk away and say, I don't want any of this anymore. Because it's torturous. I, I did that. I did that for seven years. And every single day, God was, you know, there. And I willfully chose to do things that were wrong, outside of God's plan for me or for anyone else for that matter. And I was without hope. Notice that it doesn't say that we're now without salvation, right? Because I don't believe that those of us who are in Christ ever lose that salvation, but we can lose our way, hopelessly lose our way. It's essential, therefore, that you and I continue to plant ourselves ever more deeply into the truth of the gospel, that we nurture our relationship with Christ, that we do whatever is necessary to grow in our faith. I've said this a million times, but we can't do this alone. We can't. We need each other. It's imperative that we continue to build our lives on Christ, on the rock-solid foundation, so that we can weather all the storms, all the difficulties that will come our way. And they will. Faith in Christ does not protect you from the storms of life. Remember these two words. Two words. Words that will enable you to begin to give Christ first place in your life. Truth and trust. Truth and trust. Believe the truth about Christ. The truth that you've heard, as Paul reminded the Colossians, when Epaphras came to you and spoke the truth, you remember that truth. You remember what you hear. Go back and read again the descriptions of Jesus in verses 15 through 18. And chew on those things. Try to get your mind around some of that. And then trust Him with your life. Remember who you once were, but do not live there. Do not live there. As Paul says in Philippians, forget the past and press on. In our Bible study Wednesday night, we talked about what it means to press on. Pressing on is fraught with all kinds of problems, isn't it? It's hard to press on, but that's what we're called to do. Believe that in Christ, you are a new creature, loved and valued by God. That's who you are. Amen. Yeah.